Let's hear God's word as he speaks to us again this morning. Paul writes, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blasphemy. This is God, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you again for blessing us with this word and with the words that you speak to us in the way that you allow us to praise your name. We're grateful for that, Lord, and we pray that this would be another experience of drawing closer to you. Make it so in each of our hearts, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated, and if you would, grab your Bibles. You want to go to 1 Timothy, right towards the very end of your Bibles. A little before Hebrews, you'll find 1 Timothy at the, right at the end of chapter 1. Okay, uh, show of hands just to check and see here. Uh, Brendan, I'm going to kick this all the time. Uh, the uh, show of hands, just so that I know, who remembers the old hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers? Okay, good. Oh, good, many of you. All right, good. Uh, I thought I'd have to sing a little bit of it, but get it in your head so I don't have to. Uh, Kelly heard me uh, talking to myself earlier last night, and she says, oh, I hate that hymn. I thought, well, great. It's <laughs> worth, you know, right. All right, now, many of you might know that that hymn has come under some uh, uh, opposition, some critique here in the past couple of centuries, largely, or past couple of decades, largely because of its militaristic kind of an idea, onward Christian soldiers, um, and the idea that uh, that's a little too aggressive, and particularly in light of some of the things that have taken place in uh, the world history and the military abuses and the military actions that Christians have often take, taken. Uh, some of you will know it's not a great surprise to recognize that the Christians have been on the forefront of killing each other uh, through the centuries. It has been uh, quite a, a criticism, quite, quite a critique, uh, and a challenge to what is laid before us in the scriptures about the notion of love and care and compassion that should flow forth from a Christian. And so, the idea of onward Christian soldiers has been such that it has uh, been excluded from a lot of hymnals, uh, and it's not something that is real popular these days to talk in terms of, of onward Christian soldiers, uh, that kind of militaristic kind of a look, uh, aggressive, belligerent almost type of approach to the faith. We have been talking about First Timothy in terms of a word of truth and godliness for Hebron Church. So the imagery here is to help us to remember that when God provides his word for us, he provides it not simply for us as a historical rendering so that we understand a little bit more about Timothy's interactions with Paul and those kind of things, or Timothy and Ephesus or anything along those lines, but that there's a real clear understanding and connection between what God has given us for the word and the way we are supposed to carry on our faith and life even today. This is indeed a word not just for Timothy, it is a word for us at Hebron Church. So we kind of have to deal with the very center core of the text that I just read. The center core of the text that I just read has these, this command from Paul to Timothy, wage the good warfare. 
or many of you might be more familiar with uh, other text versions of that, fight the good fight. We are called to fight the good fight. Now, either we simply say, well, that's language that we shouldn't pay any attention to because it's militaristic or it's out of step with uh, peaceful times or good mercy, this highlights everything that historically is wrong with Christian faith. Or we have to grapple with this text in some other way and recognize that, yes, Paul is speaking to Timothy, and yes, God is speaking to us, and he happens to be using very aggressive, almost belligerent, militaristic language. Now, either we just ignore that, or we try to make sense of what the text is saying for us here. Very beginning, verse 18, Paul writes to Timothy, this charge I entrust to you. Now, the, if you've missed the past couple weeks, you need to go back to the beginning of chapter one. Chapter one opens with Paul saying to Timothy, look, this is the charge. This is the reason why I left you in Ephesus, not to battle the immorality that is taking place there, not to counter other religions that are happening, not to share the faith and spread that throughout Ephesus, Yes, all of that in part. But the key thing that I want you to do is hold fast to sound doctrine and stop the false teachings that are taking place. Now, then he goes on to develop that idea, uses himself as that example. And here in verse 18, he cycles back to this. This charge I entrust to you. When he says I entrust to you, what Paul has got in mind here is, is uh, Paul, this is something for you. Timothy, this is something for you to keep. Um, to hold fast, to protect, to guard, all of that is part of built into this idea of entrusting. But it's not just that, it's, it's make sure that you hold fast to it, but also that you promulgate it, that it's spread out to everybody. Very specifically, this is the kind of a charge that a commanding general would give to a subordinate. This is a very militaristic kind of a, uh, of a command. This is a command. I command you to do this, not as, you know, an employer commands an employee or you would command a child, something like that. This is a command that is given from the commanding general down to Timothy, and Paul here has on his military format, as he says to Timothy, this is a charge in which you have to entrust yourself to. Hold fast onto this. So this is a very militaristic, very commanding general kind of a comment that Paul makes here, follows up with, this is the charge that I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. So immediately he shifts from talking from this commanding general kind of language to reminding him that he is the child, that Timothy can be associated with Paul as a father, as a child is to its father. The family legend has it that I was somewhere four, five, six years old, somewhere along those lines. I was out in public with my mother uh, by herself, and she was engaged in something where she couldn't come and stop me as I utterly and completely humiliated her and everybody around us. Uh, I don't want to go into details what I was doing. It involved food and throwing and things like that. It was a typical thing that a four-year-old might do, five-year-old might do, I was eight or 10, whatever. Uh, and and it, was, it was just a, a horrible thing and it utterly embarrassed my poor mother. She was humiliated, uh, crying very much so in public. This was a very 
powerful thing. When I got home, my father, who uh, believed in corporal punishment, uh, corporally punished me. And part of the uh, operation in the midst of this was his laying down the law. From now on, when you talk of your mother, you will call her yes, ma'am. You will speak to her as ma'am. You will speak to me as sir. And that, he laid that law on me very clearly. 50 more, 50 some years later, when I talk to my father, I still refer to him as sir. Growing up like that, it, just, it was so built in, that's just automatic to me. Growing up, when my friends would hear me do this, or other extended family members, they thought, what a horrible household. You know, my dad running things like a, like a sergeant or something like that, demanding this kind of, that never crossed my mind. When people said that to me, I always thought, no, I, I don't. Because the commanding general in my household spoke to me with a fatherly affection that I never forgot, that I could never misplace. Never once in all the times where I was being punished, never once in all the times in which I was interacting with my father did I ever lose sight of the fact that he loved me with a fatherly affection. Yes, I treated him with respect. Yes, he demanded that I treat him with respect. But there was a fatherly affection flowing from him that never stopped. And that's exactly the way the Lord speaks to every single one of us. The Lord addresses you as, his command, as your commanding general, and he absolutely is. The sovereignty of our Lord never stops. He never puts it on the shelf so he can interact with you in some other way. He never bypasses that. That is always present, always dominant in every interaction that our Lord has with you. He is the sovereign ruler of this world, and he speaks to us like the sovereign ruler of this world, always with a fatherly affection, always with that embrace, that communication of intimacy and love and compassion that led Christ to the cross. Never once is that misplaced with our Lord. Unfortunately, some of us only hear the fatherly affection, and we forget who it is that is speaking to us. Or sometimes, we are so in awe of the sovereignty and authority of our Lord that we completely neglect that constant fatherly affection. I tend to think that probably most of us bounce around those two poles, and it would be helpful for you to know where you are in that spectrum. Do I recognize the sovereign authority of my God in every interaction that I have with him? Do I interact with him as though he is constantly displaying this fatherly affection to me that I cannot avoid? Anytime we swing too far on one pole or another, we run the risk of distorting the biblical picture of our Lord and Savior. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, what's the charge again? Hold fast to the truth, fight off false doctrine. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. What prophecies? We're not told. 
We're never told anywhere in the scriptures what these prophecies are, but Paul refers to this event numerous times that it's hard not to imagine that he's talking about that event that took place when the church gathered around Timothy, laid their hands upon him, and commissioned him to go with Paul into the mission field. This is Timothy's ordination, and something happened during that ordination where the Holy Spirit spoke powerfully into Timothy's life in a way that everybody was able to recognize it. And Paul says, as you are holding faith to the truth, remember this, you're my son. I have confidence in you. The church ordains you. The church has confidence in you. And not only that, but that confidence has been sealed by the promises of the Holy Spirit. I have confidence in you. The church has confidence in you. The Holy Spirit has confidence in you. I sit there and I think, what would it be like if every member of this church pursued God's calling with the assurance that I have confidence in you, that the church has confidence in you, that the Holy Spirit has confidence in you. Out of that assurance, out of, out of that confidence, what is he supposed to do? Paul then says, by them, by these assurances, confidence, you may wage the good warfare. I'm not gonna say that because I can't say, try talking those words out. Fight the good fight. You're supposed to fight the good fight, Timothy, which immediately brings to mind what? The fact that there is a bad fight. Fight, Timothy, the good fight, not the bad fight. Now, here's the reason to point this out. Because when you hear the idea, hey, you're supposed to fight the fight, some of us who just love controversy, some of us who kind of like being quarrelsome, some of us like being contentious, say, hey, here's my, here's my command from God. I get to pick a fight with everybody I can get a chance to. That's clearly not what Paul is saying because Timothy is told throughout this letter, he was spoken this earlier in the verses in chapter one and we'll hit it again in chapter two and then in chapter four and then in chapter six, avoid quarrels, avoid contention. This is not something, when Paul says to Timothy, hey, preserve the truth, hold on to this, he's not saying pick a fight with everybody who disagrees with you. That is exactly not what Timothy is supposed to do. What Paul urges Timothy to do is to fight the good fight. Hold fast to what? Sound doctrine. The core teachings of the faith. Hold fast to Jesus Christ. Do you remember the speculations, if you were here a couple weeks ago, the speculations that are mentioned, or spec, uh, the false teaching that leads to speculations earlier in this chapter and stuff like that? Paul says, get rid of those things. Get rid of things that tie you into, that cause controversy. Hold fast to that center core aspect of the gospel, Jesus Christ. That's where your focus should be. That's where your attention is. What would it be like? If every day when you wake up, the first thing that happens is that your spouse or your kid or your parent or somebody says to you, today, I want you to fight the good fight. And what I mean by that is today, I want you to hold fast to Jesus Christ 
that he's the center, that he's at the core, that you never lose sight of one core idea, and that is that Jesus Christ is at the center of all that I do. Jesus Christ is at the center of every action that I take. And I'm not going to let anything else, I'm going to fight that fight so that nothing else, my dissatisfaction with my job, my frustration with my coworkers, my sorrow with my spouse, my kids, my, I'm not going to let anything else push out that center core concept that I am going to fight for tooth and nail, that Jesus Christ is the center of everything in my life this day. All, I can say it always, but today I'm going to make sure that Jesus Christ is the center and the core. And how is Paul telling Timothy to do this? Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. What are the weapons that Timothy has to fight this good fight? Hold on to the faith and hold on to a good conscience. The truth in which you hold, that anchor yourself in that truth, but not just that. Anchor yourself in truth and a good conscience. I, I'm uh, of the belief here that Paul is using a technical grammatical term of saying two things, linking them together. These two things go together. You can't have one without the other. And I believe you can't do this. This is solid belief and solid behavior. Hold on to the faith and hold on to a good conscience. Not do the one, then do the other. Not do a little bit of the one and a little bit of the other. Hold passionately. Fight that good fight by doing what? By having faith, solid understanding of the truth, and by a pure heart, a good conscience, that moral actions of your life, our intellect and our morality coming together to allow you to fight that good fight, to hold Jesus Christ in the center and the key of everything. And Paul then talks about, puts forward a counter proposal. If you don't fight the good fight, what does it look like? By rejecting this, the word rejecting, by the way, uh, what, first off of this, what's the this? By rejecting this, the good fight, by rejecting that coming together of our teaching and our, and our lifestyle, the fact that we have integrity of holding fast what we believe and the way we live our lives. If you reject that, and the rejecting here means turning it, not just turning away from it, but violently pushing it away. If you violently push that away, some have made shipwreck of their faith. I've never been involved in a shipwreck. I've never really seen a live one, but I've seen one on TV well enough to know that a shipwreck destroys, I mean, it's just total destruction. It is a wonderful picture to image for us the devastation that Paul has in mind here. A shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus, who we're going to find out a little bit later in uh, 2 Timothy. He shows up. We're going to learn a little bit more about who he is and how he factors into things. Alexander, who shows up earlier in the text, whom I have handed over to Satan. There have been people in my life who haven't liked me. Um, there have been folks that I have rubbed wrong, that uh, some of it is earned, some of it is not. You have these same situations in your life, uh, people that don't like you for 
good reasons and people who don't like you for no apparent reasons and those kind of stuff. As far as I know, nobody has handed me over to Satan. Like, that just sounds incredibly spooky. Like, picture what Paul is saying here. I have taken these two men and handed them over to Satan. Now, what are we supposed to understand that? How, how are we supposed to handle those kind of words? Well, I would strongly encourage anybody who's looking at this passage after this to go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul uses his exact same language in a situation that is very similar to this to identify what the early church practiced as excommunication, some kind of an idea of of removing a person from the fellowship, treating that person like they are no longer part of the fellowship. Because what is the fellowship of God? It is that place where God dwells. We are the temple of the Lord. This is the presence of the Lord. And if somebody is outside of the presence of the Lord, they are in the presence of this world that is at this present being ruled by the powers of Satan. Okay, so by handing somebody over to Satan, what Paul is saying here is that we need to treat this person as though they are an unbeliever. Now we need to phrase it like that because the implication when we read it on the page, hand that person over to Satan, is that we treat them very negatively. But how do we treat the unbelievers in our midst? How do we treat somebody who is outside of our fold? Do we treat them callously? Do we treat them without love? Do we treat them crossly? No, we treat them as though they need to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul has in mind for these two people. You can see that because of the goal that Paul puts forward for them. Why does he hand them over to Satan? So that Satan can squash them. So that Satan can torture them and make them feel bad for abandoning the faith. None of that. Why? So that, they may be, so that they may learn not to blasphemy. What is blasphemy again? Speaking untruths about our Lord. Speaking falsely about God. So that they can learn not to do that. So they can be reincorporated into the fold. After you read 1 Corinthians 5, go back and read 2 Corinthians 2 where Paul says, hey, now that you have treated this person as an outsider, now that they have repented, welcome them back into the family. That's what Paul has in mind here for, this, for these be believers who have failed to live and to fight the good fight. What is ahead for each of us? This calling that we all experience to fight the good fight. And we have the tools, the weapons at hand to do so. We have the teaching of the scripture, the word of God that teaches us the faith, and then we have the good conscience of the work of the Lord in our lives, shaping and molding us according to that word. We are called and challenged in this text, I believe, to hold the, forth the faith in a manner that we fight the good fight. And we do so because we're well aware of the blessings of being part of the community of God the presence of Jesus Christ, that center core aspect, the core understanding of the gospel in which we hold passionately to. That's the calling of this text, to fight the good fight that all of us are charged to do 
beginning right now. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for your great blessing here as we hear your word and as we respond to this calling. Father, we want to be faithful always to this challenge that you put forward before us, that we would fight the good fight, that we would honor you in all things, that we would demonstrate love and care and compassion as as Jesus Christ has taught us. So, Lord, we pray the way in which he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. 